Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of the waves crashing against a bay. But not just any bay. It's a Baywatch. Because this is a Baywatch podcast. In fact, this is Baywatch Rookie School. A podcast where two men who have never watched Baywatch before try and watch Baywatch. I'm Michael Eisen. And I'm Morgan Thrapp. And we don't know how to lead into a podcast. <laughs> no siree. Morgan, how are we doing this week? Uh, doing all right, all things considered. You know, there's a pandemic and there's smoke in the air, but hey, we're here, we're on the beach, and we're having a good chat about uh, about our favorite friends down at Baywatch. I feel like all of that is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> and like it also seems weird that the trailer for dune came out the same week in which we're about to enter our own version of arrakis like we're just about yes. to be a giant dune planet and oh my god i we were just talking before the podcast started about how like should i open up the windows tomorrow maybe not because there's a giant dust cloud moving towards us oh yeah i am glad you brought up the dune trailer though because as someone who read Dune at way too early of an age, I am extremely hyped for this movie. It looks amazing. Um, I'm not normally a huge fan of the let me take a classic song from the 60s and repitch it, but their cover of Eclipse in that trailer is so fucking good. And I have to assume that it's a reference to Yodorowsky's Dune that was supposed to be scored entirely by Pink Floyd. Probably. And just generally, I'm very excited for this movie. I, I think I've told you before, my experience with Dune is that our friend Joe lent it to me back in, I think, freshman or sophomore year of college. And it took me three tries to get past page 83. And I remember... Yeah, that checks out. The first time I read it, I was sitting at the dinner table... And I looked to my dad and I was like, I'm a smart person. I'm in college. <laughs> but dad, what is Frau Freiliken? And he was like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, Frau Freiliken. It's a word that's used here. And he's like, I, I have no clue. And I, I flipped to the back for some reason. I was like, oh, there's a dictionary. Okay. Uh, so I'm hyped for this. I'm also hyped because last week I saw uh, Blade Runner 2049 for the first time, uh, which I loved like it exceeded all my expectations because Blade Runner is my favorite movie of all time and same director. So already I was like, well, this this is going to be amazing. So I'm excited for it. Oh, yeah. Same. But you know what else I'm excited for is this episode. And same. before we start this episode, there's a few manners of housekeeping. So first, yeah, go ahead, which is this episode was written by William Rabkin and Lee Goldberg and directed again by Kim Manners, who directed last episode. Uh, it's called The Sky is Falling, and it was originally aired on October 27th, 1989. So we realized, mm, I think after recording last episode, that I have been watching the remastered version uh, via means that I do not want to say on air. Uh, <laughs> and I that is why I have the unlicensed original songs. And Morgan has been watching their original broadcast, which has actual... I don't want to say they're unoriginal songs because Rome is not an unoriginal song. It's just a licensed song. I have unlicensed songs. Um, and we also mentioned before about trying to figure out what these songs are because like I have lyrics to them, but I don't know who recorded them. They are magical in their own way. And I think they kind of make 
they, they add some flavor to the show. So I did some researching and in looking for one of the songs in this week's episode, I actually found a website which listed all of the music or almost all. And the website is called BaywatchRemasteredHD.com, which I accidentally wrote as Batwatch, which I think <laughs> is kind of great. Uh, and on there, they they have all these musicians. I think they're all from L.A. And it has their song. You, you click on the artist. It shows uh, their songs and it shows the video clip remastered from the show with their song, which is pretty cool. So last week I sang a song. And that song is performed by Kylie Deal. I, I hope I pronounced her last name right. D-I-E-H-L. She's a singer out of L.A. She did it much better than I did. Uh, and the first song in the episode last time was by Steve Bertrand, who records uh, quite a few songs for this show. He says that he did songs throughout, I think, every season almost. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of these musicians they got just sang a bunch of them. And they don't really have most of them don't have it listed on their own like bio. That they recorded for I Baywatch. Can't imagine why. Well, Steve does though, because Steve, like, I want to get Steve Bertrand on the show one day. Uh, which is absolutely, uh, he does recordings for TV, so he of course would put it on his bio. But like Kylie Deal, she's just a singer. Like it's she's not recording for TV mostly, so she wouldn't be putting that on her resume as much. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. I now I'm going to be telling you when I can find the information who recorded these songs. Uh, the last bit of information I have is uh, something I found funny, which is uh, the trivia for this episode, uh, because the trivia was so bad and so pointless that I needed <laughs> to tell you. The first bit of trivia is an IMDb uh, mess. Oh, no, actually, this is from uh, the Baywatch Wikipedia, which says in the children's story, Chicken Little sometimes known as chicken licking the title character that the title, it's, i just love that it's chicken licking uh just a great sentence i'm gonna say all the time the title character thought that the sky was falling because an acorn landed on her head and that is like that's like well that explains why it's called the sky is falling because of chicken little Great, thanks. Right, and all the acorns that fall on people's heads during this episode. And the chickens, yes. <laughs> uh, the other was from IMDb, and this is maybe the greatest piece of user-submitted like goof I've ever seen in my life, which was, the book Hobie gives Gale at the end is a library book, and thus not his to give out. <laughs> and i could not stop laughing at that and there was like i think there was only like two pieces of trivia there and or the other goof was just like something else but that i had to like i had to take a screenshot of that save that so i can look at that anytime i'm sad because uh, that just made me laugh like no tomorrow uh yeah that's very good but with that morgan this episode is crazy uh, it's so wacky and I could not be happier for you to take us into it. Yeah, I am very excited for this one as well. We start off with a pretty classic scene, which is Mitch running down the beach and he runs up to Captain Thorpe's tower. Uh, Captain Thorpe is sweeping said tower because it used to be his and he's feeling all nostalgic when all of a sudden a plane crashes into the water. 45 seconds into this episode, 
45 seconds, a plane yeah. crashes into the water. I will say up front, this is the most that has happened in an episode all season. And I am here for it. Yeah. Continuing the trend of everything happening a lot during this episode, uh, Mitch and Captain Thorpe go into the water to save the couple who were flying this plane, and the couple starts getting into some real, just like, real stereotypical sitcom couple arguing where they're yelling about how, what happened? Well, it only, we only crashed because you were flying the plane, and just real cheesy stuff, and then... The guy says a line that I find extremely funny, mm-hmm. which is, if it wasn't for me, we wouldn't even be here. Which, um, if you're both drowning <laughs> and in the wreckage of a crashed plane, uh, maybe that's not a point in your favor. Exactly. Uh, so uh, we are introduced to Sylvia and Harv, and I kind of really like Harv. Uh, he's great. Also, I read these characters, I don't know if you did too, as coded Jews. Now that you mention it, yes, absolutely. Like, these characters, to me, read 100% as Ashkenazic East Coast Jews. Like, absolutely New York Jews. Uh, It's never addressed, but, like, this is 1989, and there's, like, a way that a Jewish character is portrayed on a sitcom, and that's the character that they are playing Yeah, I definitely see that. I mean, especially, like, you consider the time period, and quite frankly, you consider a character named Sylvia, like... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're they're probably intending that. Exactly. Uh, But they are screaming for their suitcase, and we kind of just... We don't... We're not going to worry about it now, but just like from a few episodes of Craig's Locker, this suitcase is going to be my favorite B character. Oh, my God. It comes up so often... (laughs) In these, like, five-second scenes, not even. Um, but yeah, it's it's really... There are a lot, and it's very obvious from moment one that there's more going on with them than the plot wants to let on. Right. But we'll get into that later in the episode. Next up, we cut to the headquarters, and Mitch and Thorpe are talking through the rescue, and Thorpe is talking about how he, much he misses being a lifeguard and how he regrets going into management... So he wants Mitch to give him a tower already. Yeah. Which Mitch reluctantly agrees to do. He reluctantly agrees, especially because Thorpe tells him it's an order uh, Mm -hmm. and he's not going to turn Thorpe down. But also this is like this is a uh, this episode's weird for many reasons. But one of them is that we finally get to see Captain Thorpe. And I have some thoughts as we as we get into this episode. Oh, God, yes. Especially later in this episode. He's just a terrible person. Yeah, agree. Like, he's a holy shit. <laughs> he's a he's a shitbag. Yeah, yeah. But we'll we'll get into that later. Right. Uh, so Craig and Jill next appear, and they start talking, and they start saying that this couple, Harv and, Sy- uh, and Sylvia, were flying from Wallula. Now I don't know if you've done the research. But I have not. As usual, I did the research. And Wallula <laughs> is a small town of 179 people in Washington State near the Columbia River. Oh, no kidding. And their destination was Acapulco. That was a propeller plane. I actually checked with my best friend, who is a pilot. <laughs> he is a commercial airline pilot. And I said, hey, look at this plane. Here are some screenshots from the episode. 
could this plane make it from Wallula, Washington to Acapulco? And he's like, mm, probably not. And then he did then he did some research and was like, okay, Acapulco's in southern Mexico. <laughs> Definitely not. And then he told me about how one time he took me and another friend of mine on a plane ride for about 40 minutes to, I think, Friday Harbor. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I had to go there and come back and then gas it. And I was like, okay, so this was a multi-day flight on a small propeller plane. And you could yeah. store gas in like the wings and other areas uh, because they make space for that. But no way could you just be flying all that way. So I think Harv's plan was already doomed to fail. And as we learn later in the episode, he's not especially good at making plans as it is. He's not especially good, full stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we then see Harv and Sylvia digging through the plane remains to find the suitcase. And would you say it was shady? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, (laughs) if, if you weren't already sketched out by their behavior in the initial scene where we meet them, this was the final straw in terms of, like, clearly they're up to something. I also want to real quick mention... You've been referring to them as Harv and Sylvia. I believe their names get used uh, once each in this entire episode, and it's 30 minutes in. Uh, No, Sylvia is said, I think, right at the beginning, but Harv is not. Oh, okay. Sylvia said when they crash, and he's like, he says something like, uh, Sylvia, we wouldn't be here if it were not for me. And then Harv, it isn't said until much, much later. But I mean, right, like, right, right, right. I don't want to refer to them as couple. I mean, that's how they are in my notes until a solid. Okay, fair. That's fair. That's episode. fair. <laughs> but, Morgan, what were they planning to do with the suitcase? What is in the suitcase? So this suitcase, they have robbed a bank in, again, this very small town in Washington state. They have stolen a million dollars in cash, and they have put it inside a briefcase. Yes. Now, this briefcase, as we will later learn, is filled with a bag of CO2 that when a button on a remote is pressed will release the CO2 and the briefcase will float. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. But it's, you know, it's the 90s. No one knew what science was. I mean, it's 1989. We haven't even invented science yet. That's true. That's true. We were still trying to recover from the movie Weird Science. We didn't even know what normal (laughs) science was. Yeah, my only Mm -hmm. my only other note for this scene is what is it with this show and sketchy couples? Because I definitely thought the previous couple from Iowa, I think the KFC. Idaho. Like two episodes ago. Idaho. were also up to no good, but it turns out they were fine, and this is the sketchy couple. Well, if this episode tells us anything, it's something that you and I knew deep down in our hearts, which was that being in love is actually the worst thing you could possibly do because it makes you inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So everyone should stay single. That's the moral you should take away from this podcast. Yeah, exactly. This is a podcast <laughs> for people who want to become single. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which i mean it doesn't help that we're recording a podcast about baywatch uh that is true yes so yeah next up we cut to an italian restaurant on the beach where gail is waiting for mitch 
And then the waiter is real weird, and <laughs> Gail just kind of waves him off because he's being kind of creepy. Yep. And then Mitch shows up with a bottle of ketchup <laughs> and puts it down on the table. Sexy. You know, like you do at every classy Italian restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a conversation about how Gail is leaving on Tuesday. We have no idea what day it is currently, so we have no idea if yep. Tuesday is like tomorrow, next week. Who knows? Doesn't matter. Um, but she wants to take Hobie with her when she goes. And then Mitch says that Hobie was supposed to stay through the entire summer, which sets up a plot line that will run through this entire episode and actually ends up being done surprisingly well. It is. I do think you missed out two of the most important points of this scene, which is that one, we find out what Gail's job is. Yes. Which is that she's a restaurant consultant. And I don't want to spoil for who yet because i think it's a great build-up uh and then also mitch says right before he sits down that he's never seen a restaurant consultant on the job which means that mitch has never gone to a restaurant with his (laughs) ex-wife which seems very odd and no wonder you got divorced you know, now that you bring it up, yeah, that doesn't really make sense now, does it? It's like maybe like, yeah, they went and she wasn't supposed to be like reviewing. But if your job is to like go to restaurants, maybe it's just because that's the kind of guy I am when I'm in a relationship. But like I would want to go with my partner to said restaurant and be like, well, my partner had this and I had this. And I tried some of their thing and we had this experience, yada, yada, yada. Instead, it's always just like Gail eating alone, I guess. And I, I don't know. Mitch seems yeah. like a bad husband. <laughs> it also feels like more than likely she's probably not doing her job at this Italian restaurant on the beach during this scene. Like, so technically he still has it. Um, why Why are you saying that? Uh, Just because she doesn't seem to be doing a lot of, like, consulting. Like, she or eating. Like, she's just there to, you know, have a discussion with Mitch. Well, the restaurant doesn't get any better by the end of the episode, so, yeah, probably not. That's true. That's true. We also don't see the restaurant at any point during yes, the rest of this episode. We do. We do. Oh, we do? There is a threesome as I like to call it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't at all. Wait, okay, pause. Mm-hmm. Do you not have the scene with Craig, Garner, and Mitch? I didn't realize that was the same restaurant. Yes. Oh my God, oh. don't pause the episode for this. Yes. Yeah, no, we're keeping all of this in. That is, that is yes, because they show the same shitty neon light and the same oh. like creepy waiter comes up and he's just like... Craig, it's your meal. He doesn't say it like that or those words, but it's the same guy. <laughs> unless unless they pull like a the amazing world of gumball on us and there's like one guy who works every single restaurant. No, I'm pretty sure it was the same place then. No, I just totally missed that. Yeah. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to that scene later in the episode cuz I have some thoughts about that scene. Oh, as do I. But please. I do I do want to call out the cut between the scene we're talking about now with Gail and Mitch at the restaurant to the next scene, mm-hmm. which is Mitch, Hobie, and Gail in Mitch's office, is beautifully done. What they do is they play a shot of Gail talking to Mitch about Hobie, and then they do a like shot reverse shot where they where the reverse shot is Mitch, but now it's in his office and he's carrying on that conversation exactly, but this time it's directed towards Hobie. And it was really good. This show surprises us sometimes. 
Yeah, every once in a while they hire someone competent for one scene out of the episode and then immediately fire them, and I don't understand. You realize we've said that almost every episode where we have a moment where we're like, what, there's someone talented on this? And we're like, maybe, maybe it's if this show is actually good. Maybe. Could be. But then they do such a good job of disabusing you of that notion in every other shot of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, there's a brief conversation where Mitch, Gale, and Hobie are all talking about uh, Hobie and Gale moving to Ohio. And basically, Hobie's not super pumped about it. And then there's this exchange, which I really dig, which is Mitch says, you just got to get your feet wet in Ohio. And Hobie says, Dad, it's Ohio. No place to get him wet in. <laughs> I mean, there's water there, my little yeah, Hobie. Exactly. It's not but the beach. I thought it was very funny. Right. I agree. It, it's just like, if I didn't drag Ohio last episode, this show is <laughs> going to drag Ohio this episode. Like, it does it bad. Oh, yeah. But this scene ends with Hobie running off to go, and I quote, have a year's worth of fun in four days. Yeah, it, he, this is the start of Hobie's story through this episode is very serious. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's it's really good. Uh, but yeah. he talks about how like he's not going to have a summer vacation. And like at 13 years old or eight or whatever age he is, because... I don't know. Really clear. Yeah. Like, that's probably important, and especially given like who his dad is. Like, he's grown up having that like summertime on the beach. It's like essential to his life. So it's a huge deal for him to move to Ohio. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. No, I agree. Um, see, next next up, there's a brief scene where Captain Thorpe, Eddie and Shawnee are all at Captain Thorpe's tower because Captain Thorpe told Mitch to put him on a tower with two rookies, uh, even though we learned earlier in this season that two rookies would never get put on the same tower. They only put rookies and veterans together. Well, that was in the pilot, and I feel like the pilot isn't canon. <laughs> That's actually very well may be true. Um, but yeah, Thorpe, Eddie, and Shawnee are hanging out. Uh, Thorpe's monologuing, and the actor who plays Captain Thorpe like, you already know that he's an older dude, but this scene in particular, like, he very clearly grew up or got his training, rather, as an actor in the 50s. Yep. Because he hits that, like, very, like, reserved pronunciation, but not the not the British version of it, the, like, uh, I forget exactly what the name of the dialect is, but that, like... American radio announcer voice. He transatlantic? All throughout this episode. It's a little bit transatlantic, but it's like a heightened transatlantic. Gotcha. I mean, I, I noticed that too, and I, I thought he looked... I mean, he looks like an old actor from the 50s, but yeah, he very much has the acting style of someone from 50s and 60s movies, which put against Billy Warlock and Eric Kaleniak makes for some real okay boomer energy. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. It is. Yeah. Like, this entire episode is Shawnee and Eddie rolling their eyes at Captain Thorpe being the biggest windbag you could possibly imagine. Yes. Yeah, we'll get into that more later, but, oh, man, he is 
insufferable during this episode. Like in a I think in a good way. Like he's he's clearly insufferable because they wrote the character to be that way so that they would be annoyed and I enjoy that. It's not like wow, you have a badly written character. He's insufferable. Yeah, absolutely. I want to very much stress that that I think the actor is doing an incredible job with the character. I think the character is deliberately, as you said, written to be this like insufferable, know-it-all dickbag. Um, but there are a couple shots later where I think they went too far with the writing, but we'll get to those. But yeah, we cut to Harv and Sylvia, who are in a rowboat with a remote, and Harv says that when he presses the button on the remote, the CO2 on the bag will inflate, and then the briefcase will rise to the surface, and so he hits the button a bunch, and it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. It does absolutely nothing, and Sylvia, you know, berates him a bit, and then they start rowing off, and just as we're about to cut away, we see the briefcase rise to the surface behind them. This plotline is super, like, 30s slapstick the entire episode, and yeah. I kind of love it. I I really liked it. I, that's one of the reasons why I thought this episode was so much fun. I just, I, I like 30s slapstick. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. I think this, spoilers for later in the podcast, I think this might be my favorite episode so far. I would agree. I would 100% agree. Um, but yeah, next up, Gail and Mitch are back at Mitch's apartment or house or whatever, and they're packing up the rest of Gail's stuff. And then they have like some very sitcom-y kind of arguments. I forget exactly what it's even about. Oh, I have it down. Ooh, please go in. So, uh, Mitch and Gail are trying to, uh, divvy up their stuff that Mitch still has. Mm -hmm. And so... Gail talks about this ceramic duck that she owned and how it magically disappeared when they got the divorce and or when they started going through the divorce. And Mitch talks about, oh, that's weird. Like I had a surfer dude hat and that disappeared. Uh, and they keep on looking, you know, over you know these memories. And uh, Mitch has this picture with... In quotes, your weird cousin, what's her name? Enid? <laughs> and then Gail was like, yes, Enid. And mm -hmm. then he goes, well, you looked really good there, which, great job, Mitch. And then he pulls out this, like, sweater of hers, and he's, like, admiring it. And this is our first sign that Mitch is just still head over heels in love with Gail. Mm-hmm. And, ooh, this, this hit me hard. Like, yeah, this plot line... I have feelings and thoughts about. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about it in detail, I hope. But. Oh, yeah. Then what happens is Gail walks away and it, it looks like what she's walking away from is just she's like, oh, my God, Mitch, like, shut up. It's like, stop talking about this stuff. But really, I well, think specifically, it's specifically, he keeps going on and on about he keeps finding this like photo album and going on and on about photos of their honeymoon. And specifically, he finds a picture of them on their honeymoon and goes. <laughs> remember this this was the only day we left our hotel and yeah. just spends a bunch of time like being nostalgic for their relationship and gail is just super not having it it makes sense why gail is walking away uh, yeah totally but, but at the same time she walks away and then it 
it's not clear if it's accidentally or on purpose. She breaks Mitch's favorite lifeguard mug uh, and she starts crying on the floor, just like bursts into tears. And Mitch is like, it's okay. Like, I'll hold you. Like, it's it's just a mug. And she talks about like all the memories she has associated with the mug, how there's these brown stains on the bottom of it. And he would have it like every he would use it every day in the morning. So clearly, like her memories are there. And then she admits that she burned Mitch's surfer dude cap. And Mitch says, I crushed your duck. And then they totally <laughs> fuck. Like they oh, are a hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, it's not even implied. Yeah. It's like it's explicit. It's explicit that they just bang. They bone it out. Yeah. My note for this scene is that they feel so much like a real couple. What is this show? <laughs> this felt very real and like very human and compared to like you know earlier in the episode even where it's things like gotta get your feet wet in ohio dad it's ohio no place to get them wet in <laughs> i'm just gonna use that all the time though i'm just gonna see like <laughs> someone oh, yeah. i'm just gonna be like there's no place to get them wet in as an answer to any question <laughs> Next up, we get one of many quick shots of the floating briefcase full of, at this point, we're not sure what it's full of, because they haven't actually said until much later in this episode. So my note just says, quick shot of the floating bag of money, jewels, something. Um, Lifeguard hats. Sorry. Exactly. Surfer dude hats. <laughs> Surfer dude hats and ceramic ducks. That's all that it has. Next up, we've got Hobie coming home on his bike, and my note says Mitch and Gail clearly slept together because they are both coming downstairs, buttoning up uh, dress shirts, and it's I have very some obvious. thoughts about this scene, and and Go ahead. not just about the fact that Hobie forgets his baseball cards, and he says I've got some major trading to do, <laughs> which, yes, which <laughs> made me very happy, Hobie. Uh, is talking to Gail and uh, he's like, oh, uh, you're still here. You didn't finish everything. And I thought you would have finished everything. She's like, I don't know. And he says, well, it's nice to know that you don't know everything, which amazing line. And he also yeah. says like, mom, I don't want to be away from you, which also great line. So then Mitch comes downstairs and Mitch clearly just had sex. Like mm -hmm. he, he puts on it's this collared shirt. It's not buttoned all the way. You can see his 10 on the 1 to 10 scale abs, and mm -hmm. he's, like, butting them up. And this is the part that hurts me. He grabs Gail and kisses her on the cheek. And I had to, like, watch this in slow motion because yeah. Wendy Malick just does this, like, wretch on her face. Clearly because it's like, oh, no, you have the wrong idea here. And... Oh, I feel so bad. Uh, it It's yeah. hard to describe the feeling, but you it's like watching when you watch your friend get into a relationship, you know, is bad or like, you know, someone is doing something that's actually going to hurt them. That feeling you feel inside. That's what I feel for Mitch, just because it's so obvious that he is completely wrong about the situation. Totally. And I think there's an exchange slightly later in this scene that kind of closes out the scene that I think really exemplifies this, which is 
you know, Gail, Mitch, and Hobie are all down in the living room, and they've been having this conversation, and it's clear that, like, Mitch is trying to project this energy to Hobie of, like, don't worry, we're all getting back together, and it's going to be fine, we're going to be a family again, and then Mitch says, what do you say we jog down to the boardwalk and have some fruit smoothies like we used to? And Gail says, I'm afraid I don't have time for that. In fact, I don't have time for breakfast at all, and just, like, runs out of there, and is clearly, like not really sure how to handle this which is understandable because she doesn't want to like hurt hobie further or mitch for that re for that matter really um but is also trying to figure out how she can safely be like hey actually like i get that we slept together but that doesn't mean that we're not still getting divorced and it doesn't mean that we're good as a couple again all of a sudden right and i think the next scene really adds to that yeah absolutely the next scene is basically mitch and craig are in mitch's office and they're talking about how mitch and gail slept together um like we said it's it's not implied it is explicit oh yeah that the two of them slept together um but mitch is convinced that all of this means that he can save the marriage and Craig is, like, trying to talk some sense into Mitch and be like, I get that you think this means that you two are getting back together, but you really shouldn't be reading that into this. Yeah, he says a line which, uh, there are some lines in this episode that hit me with what I call therapy moments, which were yeah. moments where I, I heard them say that and I went, oh, dang, like, I should internalize that or wow, that feels like something my therapist said to me, something like that. And Craig says this line in this scene, which is problems don't go away just because you went to bed. Yes. And I was like, oh, God damn it, Craig. Like, Thanks for giving me a little bit of that uh, sweet love and tenderness there uh, because I, I need to internalize that. Um, yeah, it's just rough. And... But it's important because he's hearing it from his best friend. I assume it's his best friend other than Steve, uh, <laughs> who stole his kid. Uh, yeah, I assume you know, Craig is here throughout the episode. Besides the fact that he was his lawyer in the last episode in child custody, he knows Gail and he knows Mitch. And like he wants the best for Mitch, but he sees that Mitch is kind of being self-destructive. Yeah, totally. No, I think this is another really good example of when the writers actually seem to have, like, sobered up and given a shit about a scene. They yeah. They write surprisingly well. Um, but yeah, we, um, we have this nice little therapy scene between Craig and Mitch, and then we cut to the polar opposite in terms of <laughs> yes. writing sincerity, where we have uh, Sylvia and Harv from earlier who are scuba diving to try and find their lost money this is also the scene in which we actually learn harv's name yes and also the first time where sylvia's name is clearly said like it's like muttered during the plane crash scene i feel like he shouts sylvia so uh, i don't it could know. be i wasn't paying super close attention that's fair um but yeah we learn here that they got all their money from robbing a bank or something it's not really totally clear we know there's a safe and we know that sheldon is going to open the vault and that if he does the two of them will be in trouble because they're his best employees 
Yeah, exactly. That's why we think it might be a bank. But they never actually say that they robbed a bank at any point during this. Not in this scene. Not in this scene. Yeah, yeah. Not until later. Um, but yeah, Sylvia and Harv have a little exchange that I really enjoy, which is basically Harv is like, you know, don't worry about it. At least we got away and I'm sure we'll be fine. Like we're all the way down in California now. Sylvia says, but I want my seaside via. I want my hot Latin lover. And again, Harv, who has been coded as this like very East Coast, like New York Jew says, wait, I thought I was your hot Latin lover and the scene ends. And I thought that was extremely funny. It's also weird. There's a part that it just feels so 1989, early 1990, where Sylvia says, we got to get down to Mexico. And uh, what do we do when we get there? Are we just going to sell tortillas? And Harv says, that's actually an option. And I thought, why was that line (laughs) necessary for the episode? It just feels like on the edge of of appropriative racism. Yeah, totally. It it makes no sense. Uh, But hey, you know what else is bad? I thought I'd pull you there. Captain yes. Thorpe, tell me about oh, it. Oh, God, yeah. So we cut back to Captain Thorpe at his old tower with Eddie and Shawnee, where he's lecturing Eddie and Shawnee about how they should spot people who are potentially going to drown. And then he points to an overweight woman and says, now there's a sinker. He says, 10 o'clock, spot the sinker. Oof. Oof. Just like, holy shit, this is bad. And Shawnee clearly is disturbed by this. Yeah, the show tries to redeem it a little bit by having Shawnee act offended at this and defends the woman by saying that she went and talked to this woman, implying that she already knew this woman was going to sink, and that the only reason this woman isn't going to sink is because she hasn't gone into the water since she saw Jaws 2. Thanks, Baywatch. Thank you Holy for that. Holy shit. Whole, yep. whole mess of nope. Um, yeah, didn't she see Jaws 1? <laughs> <laughs> like, it took yeah, you actually, two Jaws movies to be afraid? What the fuck is wrong with you? Right? Like, if you're going to be scared of one of those movies, Jaws 2? Really? But don't worry, they do make it up in the next exchange in which Captain Thorpe points out a bodybuilder and says, oh, he's going to sink too because he's, and I quote, built like a slab of beef and beef doesn't float. Yeah. How how often are you trying to make beef float? <laughs> like, how do you, like, I get you know that, but like, how often have you thrown meat in the water and just been like, look, at six? Yeah. I mean, I haven't done that, but I will say you get a, you take a nice burger and you throw it in a glass of root beer. Now that's a good beef float right there. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like an ice cream float, but a beef float. Oh, like a beef steak. Beef shake. Sure. Sure. But like, like a beef float, like you, you take some beef and you, you put it in some root beer. Like a like a beef float. This feels like everything Hebrew school was trying to warn me about the Gentiles. <laughs> like they're just like, be wary of the Gentile. He will tell you things like this. And then you'd be like, oh, God, is this what they do? I mean, it hasn't been, but now I'm kind of curious. Um, I kind of actually want to try that. That's the problem. Right. Uh, so now we cut to this first song of the episode. Mm-hmm. Do you have lyrics for this one? Oh, I always have lyrics. 
Yes. I will always have lyrics. Uh, hopefully. Uh, so this song <laughs> is by Sean McCune. And this song is really catchy. The thing that got me to to go through this whole you know conquest to figure out these songs is because I thought that they made a mistake and they had given me an original uh, or a, a licensed song because Sean McCune sounds a lot like John Bryan. John Bryan is the composer for the soundtrack of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He also was. Uh, in a band called The Greys. He's also been the producer for Regina Spector and Fiona Apple. He has a very, like, kind of signature sound. Uh, and his voice sounds exactly like Sean McCune. Also sounds like him is Jason Faulkner, who was in the band Jellyfish, which, Morgan, you would love Jellyfish. I need to play you some Jellyfish sometime. I will check him out. Uh, Jason Faulkner was in the band was in the band jellyfish and one of the members of jellyfish was in the grays with john bryan so they all kind of sound alike and they all sound like sean McCune. so this <laughs> the lyrics of this song go these days are the best days of my life these days it feels good to be alive uh 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 above the clouds <laughs> i'm flying these days it feels good to be alive every road has a way of throwing curves I'm in a mode of not letting it get on my nerves. These days are the best days of my life. The best of my life. Don't worry what's around the corner. Don't hurry through life. Don't worry what's around the corner. Don't hurry through life. Every road has a way of throwing curves. I'm in a mode of not letting it get on my nerves. These days are the best of my life. The best of my life. The best of my life. Uh-uh. Uh, above the clouds I'm flying the best of my life uh, uh, uh. it feels great to be alive uh, uh, uh. thank you thank you very nice very nice and it immediately then cuts to the third instance of shots of the suitcase in the water mm-hmm. yeah we also over top of this entire song it's not worth spending any time on but it is worth mentioning it's basically just a montage of Captain Thorpe being an asshole. Oh, yeah. Just, like, generally yelling at people for having fun. Yeah, he does. He seems like the kind of guy who would make a no flotation devices on the beach kind of rule. Yeah, but after after that, we've got another little scene with uh, Gail, Hobie, and Mitch, where Gail is finishing up packing, and Hobie asks if they're still moving to Ohio, and Gail says what I heard as, but I suspect is not true. Um, of course, we can't let Captain Cluck down. No, you did not mishear that. It is oh, Captain Cluck. Okay. She works for Captain Cluck, which is oh my... Oh my God, that makes so much more sense. Okay. It, it's my actual new favorite. Like, f- fuck the suitcase. Captain Cluck. Oh my God. I need to know everything about who the fuck Captain Cluck is and why he's making Gail move to Ohio to review restaurants. Is he like the restaurant Mr. Skin? <laughs> I need to know. Yeah, I spent this entire episode alternating back and forth between there's no way they're saying Captain Cluck, right? And, oh, I guess they're saying Captain Cluck? Uh, what else would it be? Captain Fuck? Captain Chuck was what I thought. Nah, Captain I thought Chuck. I thought like her boss was someone named Chuck and was just like some old white dude who was like, you have to call me Captain Thorpe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. Captain's on the brain. But it, no, it is Captain Cluck. Yeah. But then we get into a better scene. There's a there's a little bit more to this one that I want to talk about, which oh, is sure. that Mitch basically tells Gail that he thought them sleeping together the last night meant something, and Gail is basically like, listen, I was just trying to let you down easy, I just wanted to have one last night of fun, it's fine. And then Mitch says, I can't tell you how many hours last night I spent watching you sleep. <laughs> and it's bad. I don't like it. I don't and like it. She says, do, do you think just because they made love, everything would be different? And they immediately cut to Hobie watching and listening to his yeah. parents talk about having sex last yeah. night, which is boy, howdy. And then yeah. he he says he has heard enough and he shouts that they should stop fighting. He'll go wherever they want to go. He just wants the fighting to stop. Which, mm-hmm. Holy cow. Way to write a scene. Mm hmm. Yeah, I thought it was actually really well written. The other thing that I really liked in that particular scene was that Gail spends a bunch of time basically talking about how part of the divorce was that she felt like she couldn't measure up to Mitch. And that felt like super real to me. Especially given Mitch is this protagonist, like, God figure. Yeah, yeah. Of course she's not going to match up to him. We've literally written him to be perfect. Exactly. So I think that's like, again... (laughs) Who expected this level of writing? (laughs) Yeah, especially in season one. Like, I was thinking, okay, maybe, you know, a couple seasons into it, we'll get some good writing and some good acting. But nah, they're hitting hard out the gate, and I appreciate it. Yeah, which, now, granted, they saved all of their writing chops for this next scene. Yes. Which we, (laughs) you and I are going to have so much to talk about. Ooh, you want to lead us into it? I would be so honored to do that. Thank you. Of course. This is the best scene. We are back at the Italian restaurant and we have Craig, Mitch and Officer Garner Ellerby. So Mitch says that he's never been alone before. So he moved. He he, with his parents. He moved in with Craig for that, like, you know, apartment or whatever hobble that they had few minutes from the beach for 50 bucks that we heard about a few episodes ago then he met gail and he moved in with gail and then he had hobie and so he's never been alone and garner says uh, which is something I, I disagree with a lot he says you can't sit around feeling lousy because that means she wins yeah like, like it's not a competition dude exactly yeah not every interaction with another human being has to be this transactional thing like it's entirely possible and likely that two people will walk away from an exchange and both feel bad yep but then officer garner does something unexpected he introduces my actual favorite character of this episode (laughs) because first you thought it was the suitcase but no 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 you were wrong then you thought it was captain cluck but no, 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 you are wrong. <laughs> My new favorite character is actually Officer Garner Ellaby's ex-wife, Cecilia Marie. Is that her name? I he says legitimately it. could not figure out what her name was throughout Wait. this entire scene. He says it ten times. He does, but he spends the entire scene going, yeah, my ex-wife... <laughs> yeah, no, he says it's Cecilia Marie. But he, like, slurs it the entire time, which I get, because the intention is that They've all been drinking all night, but also, at least personally, I cannot fucking understand what his wife's name was. But also, like, 
you wouldn't expect him to write a character named Cecilia Marie. But I think that's the best part about it. So Garner says he used his breakup or divorce or whatever as a chance to start a new life. And Craig says, no, you called in three days in a row sick and sat in the dark listening to try a little tenderness over and over. So Garner says it was rough at first, but then he realized that there were other women out there, ones who could make him happy instead of miserable. And losing Cecilia Marie was the best thing that ever happened to him. And holy cow, I was like, is is this going to be a scene I relate to? <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, because it's just like, Garner is so on point with the thoughts of how a breakup works uh, Mm -hmm. that I was a little bit scared that I was watching the wrong show. (laughs) So Mitch says being without Gail isn't what's going to kill him. It's being without Hobie. And Craig has to remind him that Hobie isn't going away forever. He'll be around for Christmas and holidays and he gets him for the summers. So he'll have time with him. He'll have like an uh, uninterrupted you know, three months or so out of a year in the summers to just hang with his son. So then yeah. Garner starts doing his thing, uh, which is Garner says that Mitch should do what he did. Meet new people, go new places, do things you've always wanted to do. Now you have the time because you're no longer in a relationship. And Mitch says, well, I've been thinking about buying a mountain bike. I should do that. And Garner immediately interrupts with saying, well, Every place I went, I wondered what it'd be like if Cecilia Marie was there. And Craig says, we should invite Eddie to go go mountain biking with us. Garner says, with everything new thing I've tried, I wonder if Cecilia Marie had done it with someone else. <laughs> and Mitch says, maybe we could get some saddlebags, make it an overnighter. Uh, we, should, we could go into the backcountry and, you know, he, cheers to that. Garner says, and then with every new woman I met, I think, she's not as beautiful as Cecilia Marie. <laughs> Mitch then invites Garner, and Garner says, damn, I miss her. And then he says, I have to go now because I feel alone and you guys are a drag. And Mitch and Craig find this exceedingly hilarious, as do I. And I thought this was such a human scene, and I could not stop being overjoyed by how much I loved this scene. It was a little bit, but I will also say it felt a little bit shitty to me that Garner is out here being like, hey, I gave you some advice and now I'm spiraling a little bit. Can y'all help me? And then Mitch and Craig's reaction is to just like laugh at him. To just be like, well, we already know they're not like great people, though. Like, that's that's the thing. And like, yeah, he's clearly spiraling. And as someone who has, I don't know, done a few spirals in my time, uh, (laughs) I I can relate to this. And especially like post breakup spirals. Yeah, Uh, totally. and that was just like so reminiscent of like what people go through that I was I was like, why is this happening in my lifeguard show? Where are Harv and Sylvia? What about the money? Yeah. What is happening again? And so, Morgan, please tell us what happens in the next scene. Hobie and Gail are packing some more and Hobie does not want to leave. And I mean, understandably, going mm-hmm. to Ohio from California seems kind of meh. Um but Hobie is talking to Gail about how he had thought that Mitch and Gail were starting to get back together, and so he got his hopes up, and now he's upset that he has to move again. And Gail, like, very aggressively 
pushes Hobie down on the bed and starts yelling at him about how much she loves him and how it's not his fault that the that Gail and Hobie broke up. Or very aggressive. <laughs> Ooh, that's bad. We're not gonna yeah. leave that in. <laughs> oh, I think you should, but okay. <laughs> Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Um, right. Gail very aggressively pushes Hobie onto the bed and attempts to disabuse Hobie of the idea that Hobie had anything to do with Gail and Mitch breaking up. Um, and just, it felt, it felt very weird. I didn't like how aggressively she was yelling at Hobie that it wasn't his fault and that he should relax. Well, I think this show's... In this episode, like, yes, Mitch is supposed to be perfect. Like, he is our protagonist. And Gail has also been, like, perfect. And this is, like, the one time where she's not perfect. Like, it's not not great, but it's the one time where she's not perfect. And she clearly cannot deal with the fact that, like, her son is just like, I thought thought you and dad were getting back together. And she's like, you do not get it. Like, he... Like he is coming on. To, she doesn't say this, but he is coming on to me. I am putting up a boundary, and he has to accept that boundary. And she, I, I think she's just being honest with him that her and Mitch fought a lot, and it wouldn't work. And they always fought a lot, and it never was going to work. But the only reason they stayed together was because of him. And that uh, Hobie then says, like, "Well, I have to forgive you." for this because i don't have any friends in columbus and that was the part that was most sad to me but i get that like yeah this was really aggressive and it's not she's not being a good mom she's just being an honest real flawed person yeah that's a good point i think when you put it that way it makes a little bit more sense to me like i was very much thinking about it in terms of them trying to write a good healthy relationship between gail and hobie but i think Considering it as kind of character development for Gale actually makes me like this a little bit more, I gotta say. I I think this episode, one of the reasons why I like it so much is the fact that we have, holy God, like this is episode five, Mm -hmm. six if you count the pilot. And we have already gone through the construction and now we're at the deconstruction phase of these characters, which most shows do not do for seasons yeah and, yeah and we're already deconstructing mitch and gail to a degree that i find vastly more interesting than a lot of other shows do and i i, I think it's actually kind of genius i don't i don't know like i i really liked the way that that scene allows us to see into how just flawed gail is because she is not able to deal with how much of a misunderstanding between her and Mitch there is. I don't like praising Baywatch. I do because this <laughs> is the thing we do now. But also it feels like I'm like a shill. Like everybody is saying like this, like this show. Everyone's like, well, this show sucks. It's Baywatch. Like, do you know what you're recording? I'm like, yeah, I'm recording Baywatch. But the thing I didn't realize is Baywatch has some good writing. And this is a, an episode I'll refer to. To have people watch and be like, you have to, you don't even have to have the context for the rest of the, the construction of these characters to get why this episode is powerful and why it's good writing. It helps, but you don't need that. 
Yeah, I would totally agree. I think you can get a surprising amount even of the history of the relationship between like Mitch and Gail just from how well they deconstruct that relationship. I would probably recommend this episode to people. Like I would actually recommend, hey, you want to watch an episode of Baywatch, watch this episode. I mean there's more episode, but I would recommend this. Yeah. And hey, if they're not into good character development, the next scene has something for them. At least the beginning of it does. Sambonis? Uh, no, not Sambonis. It does. More women. It, it, well, I, I'm, a, I'm about this. I mean, I'm about more, I can mean about more than one thing. And one of those things is Sambonis. Because you get a Sanboni and then you get suitcase shot number five. Yep. Oh, yeah. And there's still quite a few of these suitcase shots later in the episode i stopped even writing them down at some point there's only one more oh there's only one more okay yes then maybe i didn't stop uh i forget <laughs> anyway we'll get to it later yeah. but we yeah we have one more suitcase shot and then we've got eddie who is helping a very busty woman zip up her bathing suit well captain thorpe bores Shawnee with a monologue about the history of plastic, and then Shawnee rats out Eddie to Captain Thorpe. It's not just plastic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's how the history of torpedo buoys yeah. and their switch from being made out of the non-durable rubber to mm -hmm. plastic. Morgan, have some respect. <laughs> but also, you're right. Like, oh, whatever. I don't give a shit. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Shawnee rats out Eddie, and Eddie is still down on the beach helping this woman with her bathing suit, zipping up the front of it, and then Captain Thorpe runs down, and this is probably my favorite exchange of the whole episode. It's so good. Um, Captain Thorpe runs up to Eddie, who he keeps calling... Kramer. Kramer, throughout this entire episode. And I don't understand it because we've never heard Eddie called that before. I assume it's his last name. It's his last name. But it's very weird. But yeah, Captain Thorpe says, let me guess, her hair got caught in her zipper and you just had to help her. And Eddie says, exactly. And Thorpe says, even rookies know better than to try the Rapunzel scam with me. Which <laughs> I fucking died laughing. You remember that part in Rapunzel where her hair gets caught in her bra? Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite part. Oh, it's so good. It's so, it's so dumb. And she's, she's like waving to him like, bye. Like, I hope you don't yeah. get like in trouble for this. But Thorpe... There's no scene more than this scene where I look at Thorpe and I'm like, that's a man who starred in some adaptation of The Tempest at one point in the last <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's uh, there's not a whole lot more to this particular scene. Um, and then next up is the final shot of the briefcase because it gets run over by a speedboat and money goes flying everywhere. Now, in my mind, when I saw this scene, the first thing I thought of was, I'm shocked they didn't make it get hit by a power ski. <laughs> <laughs> because we've already talked about the evils of the power ski. Yeah. Many episodes ago. And I, I would just hope that that Satan spawn of technology comes back <laughs> to ruin the day more and more times. But this time, no, it's a speedboat. Darn. Yeah. 
Yeah. We don't get any more of Trevor's antics on a, on a power ski and or jet ski, depending on whether or not we like it in that particular scene. Yep. Next up, we've got Mitch and Hobie, who are in Mitch's office, and Mitch is apologizing to Hobie for the fact that Gail and Mitch have been fighting a bunch in front of Hobie. Hobie checked out a bunch of books from the library about Ohio, and Mitch is absolutely shocked, jokingly, in a very, like, oh, whoa, 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 fun, whoa. teasing kind of way. No, you skipped quite a bit here. I did. I think. So, wait, they hit the money... And then it cuts to that? Yeah, I think this scene might have been cut from your version. because it's just ah, and, ah. Then, and then we get to all the money starting to wash up okay, yeah, on the beach. Cool. Tell me more about this then. Basically, my only other note from this scene is that, wow, Hobie and Mitch have such a good relationship. Like, it feels, it feels very loving. It feels very natural. Um, and then we cut to money washing up on the beach. Oh, yeah. And... Specifically, uh, Harv and Sylvia are walking out of the ocean as the money starts to wash up behind them. That's also cut from mine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They, um, this scene actually, I think, was very interesting because I can't tell if it was written intentionally or ironically or if I'm just viewing it through my own, like, 2020 leftist socialist kind of lens but basically, the couple starts walking out of the ocean, and money starts washing up on the beach behind them. And the two of them, Harv and Sylvia, start talking about how, well, we didn't find out any money, but it's okay, because we have each other, and love is much more important. Oh, this money. is totally cut. Oh, my God. Yeah, but it's it's weird, because they're saying all of this as the entirety of the beach is barreling full speed towards the two of them and running for the money. So it's like there's this whole scene about how money isn't important and it's all about the love you have for each other, but also literally everyone else disagrees with them and thinks money is more important. So I couldn't tell if it was meant to be serious or ironic or what the hell was going on. Yeah, so in mine, it... It has like it doesn't mention the love thing. Money starts flying out and then they cut to some people running and then they cut to Jenny and Hobie, who I accidentally wrote. Uh, oh, no, uh, it actually did cut to Hobie and Mitch, but I was very confused because my note said Ohio then tells Ohio about his, how he's learning great things about <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> 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 and they, they mentioned something about like a river catching on fire but yes yeah they cut that was that they cu scene they cut to um a girl so is they cut from that scene to a girl making a sandcastle and she puts a 100 dollar she she takes a 100 dollar bill and puts it in the top of the sandcastle and everybody runs in and so there's no conversation between Harv and Sylvia and instead it cuts to Hobie and Jenny talking. Yeah, I have that scene as well where basically Hobie and Jenny are talking about how Hobie's about to move to Ohio and just like people are running in between the two of them and Hobie and Jenny just are very clearly following their blocking from the director, which I don't blame them. Like when you're 12, that's what you do. Um, but it felt very like 
surrealist like it felt almost like a like a charlie kaufman bit of like just our protagonists are completely unaware of the outside world yeah they do kind of just be like huh i guess that's weird i want to investigate any of this which i'm like you're 12 of course you're going to investigate this yeah like when i was 12 i mean my attention span is not good now at 26 but when i was 12 holy shit was it bad um it gets worse yeah yeah ah i feel like it got better and now it's starting to get worse mine was better this is so weird mine was better last year and this year has been a new high of not caring i mean i can't imagine why it's not like this year has been overwhelmingly and unprecedentedly stressful for mm, everyone (laughs) i have no clue what you're talking about and in no way do i think that contributes to the reason why we started a podcast Mm -hmm. no could never be could never be on a better note which is slightly better note yeah 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 Um, captain captain thorpe notices that everyone who ran into the water is now caught in a riptide um and he radios the base, and the radio control operator, whose name... Sid. Sid. Okay, I had it written down as Sal, but I was pretty sure that wasn't right, and I didn't care enough to look it up. It's got an S. Yeah, you know, I was... It's three letters. It starts with an S. I was pretty close. Um, Here's the radio message from Thorpe, and yells to Mitch, Kill Rip Tower 21, which is such great lingo. They cut that from mine. Oh, really? No, it's yeah. There's a whole exchange here that's very good. No, uh, they 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 do say something about like Tower Twenty One, uh, Riptide. Mm-hmm. They don't do like Kill Rip. They don't do any of that. Yeah, this is Kill Rip Tower Twenty One. And then Mitch says, "How many people are there?" Sal says, "Twenty to thirty, but more people are coming." And Mitch leans out of his office, rolls his eyes, and goes, "People don't run into a Riptide." And Sid goes, they do when there's money floating in it. And Mitch, (laughs) like, you can see the panic on his face as he runs back into his office and starts ordering choppers. And he's like, no, not on my capitalist beach. (laughs) This is not a communist beach I am running here. (laughs) Then there is a very horny montage of people stuffing money in their clothes while... Uh, Harv and Sylvia start just like punching swimmers and stealing money from them. Yes. And to this, we have a song. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, so for my version, um, it's the very classic like country rock kind of sounding song. It's a it's a little bit on that like um, rockabilly kind of edge. It's a nice little ditty. Uh, I could not find out who did this one, but here are the lyrics. Yeah. They say it makes the world go round. It makes sense, C-E-N-T-S, to me. I don't care if it's dollars or pounds. Baby, just give it to me. I'm talking about money. (laughs) Let let or fly through the air. I'm talking about money. Is there enough to spare? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) Gimme, gimme that money. Yeah. They say that it doesn't grow on trees. It's a fantasy. It takes hard work to get that green, but I get it easily. I'm talking about money. <laughs> Let her fly through the air. I'm talking about money. Is there enough to share? Gimme, gimme, gimme. 
Gimme, 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 gimme that money. Yeah, in the broadcast version, that was an instrumental. <laughs> and I think so it was better for it. <laughs> it totally improves the scene. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. I just could not stop saying gimme for like the next ten hours. I was obsessed with the word gimme. Yeah. It's um the music in this show sure is some. But then what happens next? Next is Thorpe and Eddie go to rescue some people, but Captain Thorpe gets a cramp and now suddenly he needs rescuing. So Eddie starts heading for him. But then Captain Thorpe is like, no, don't worry about me. Go save the girl. And definitely feels like he's about to die. Like my note here is Captain Thorpe seems resigned to death. And that's a weird energy for this part of the episode. It very much is. Um, But next up, we go back to Hobie and Jenny. And since the two of them are junior lifeguards, they rush into the water and try and save people. They end up pulling a kid out of the water and they start doing what the show thinks is CPR on this kid. Um, But they're not actually doing chest compressions on this kid. Mm -hmm. Hobie is just blowing into the kid's mouth, which is not (laughs) how you do CPR. (laughs) It's a very weird scene because I can see like Jenny just stares at him the whole time. And I'm like, you realize he's he's not really doing CPR. He's just like trying to make out with this girl. And you're just like, "Uh uh-huh, go on. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, I mean, I get why they did it. Like, you don't really want kids performing stage cpr that feels like a bad idea but also it just looked it looked so fake um yeah the the kid that hobie and jenny rescue starts breathing just as an adult lifeguard drives up and starts you know taking charge of the situation and saving them after that is hobie and jenny they go back to hq And Shawnee meets them downstairs and tells them that you're going to be in a whole bunch of trouble. You could have drowned. You're not certified. You didn't have the proper tools. Um, I better bring him. I better bring you two upstairs. And they're they're really going to have a lot to say to you. And so Hobie and Jenny go upstairs and all of the lifeguards are standing around staring silently staring just like glaring at the kids and mitch comes out of his office and addresses both of them by their full name and says you two went into the water without proper safety gear and without backup and without training and you deserve a promotion and commendations and just like totally fucks with them and i thought it was very funny um, very good. And then Jenny gives Hobie a kiss. She a kiss. sure does. I mean, she kisses him on the cheek, but it, it look, it, they're 13. It, it counts. Yeah, uh, totally. And then his mom sees this and it makes her very happy. Because mm-hmm. why wouldn't it? I was like, eh, that's cute. Like, yeah. Gail, Gail gets to watch her, her son, like, have this great time. Uh, around all these people who like enjoy him and then there's a cute girl uh and like eh, yeah why not like this seems this seems pretty great yeah i thought it was a i thought it was a very cute scene but then then 
Harv and Sylvia walk in. Yes, they do. And Harv thinks they should just ask for the money back. <laughs> and and Sylvia's like, are you are you crazy? And he's like, oh, we don't know. We haven't tried. So then they say that the money belongs to the Wallula National Bank. Now, if you remember, Wallula is a 179-person town off of the Columbia River. It definitely does not have a national bank. Uh, there is a, uh, I think, Wallula River or like a there. Wallula is basically based around the fact that there is a river there. Not not big on the financial operations sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, not a lot of fintech bros moving out to Wallula, Washington. <laughs> no, no, they're go- they're they're instead instead going to Camas, Washington, which maybe has like a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they walk in on Jill and Craig, who are like counting money, and they're like, "Wow, how could they steal a million dollars? I thought they were such like a nice, ordinary couple." Um, you can really tell that the writers had used up all of their writing juice by this scene because it's basically just Jill directly stating the plot to Craig. And it's so, it's so badly written because Hart I like and Sylvia it. show up behind Craig and Jill and just like look at the money and look at each other and do a very like 30s slapstick cartoon ghoul but that's why i love it i love this scene so much because i'm like this is so slapstick and so cartoony like the way they back away is they immediately they're still holding they're still like arms around each other's backs they're Mm -hmm. doing in sync walks back they turn around they see garner coming and so then they're just like oh gotta get downstairs like it is so cartoonish yeah it's just it's not badly written if you consider the fact that the rest of the couple's scenes are written as this, like, 30s slapstick cartoon, but it's a very abrupt tonal shift between this very serious scene between, like, Hobie and Mitch and the rest of the lifeguards and Gale, where it's like, okay, we're, you know, dealing with the fact that Hobie and Jenny just saved a kid's life and did it without proper equipment and precautions and things to go to this like kind of scene was like what the fuck is going on i feel like this scene is more fitting when you remember that baywatch was written by leon trotsky and buster keaton (laughs) (laughs) because we all know that it was written by those two individuals Mm -hmm. um and that then at does, one point, like, I don't know, like Trevor's per- perchance for uh, backflips and power <laughs> tricks. Oh, everyone knows Leon Trotsky was all about backflips. <laughs> like, and he loves to trot and he loves to ski because mm-hmm. that's his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, at one point, maybe they brought in like, I don't know, like Dr. Phil. Uh, who let me ruin dr phil for you more so than dr phil has already ruined himself and that is have you ever realized that dr phil has a cone head he does um but to ruin him even further he posted a tiktok today which is him addressing the audience telling them all to stop calling him daddy in the comments <laughs> <of his face. laughs> and it's, it's why hey because it's dr phil very seriously going now listen (laughs) i'm asking you all to please stop calling me daddy 
in the comments on my posts. I'm not your daddy, and I'm sure your real daddy would be very disappointed to hear you say that. I'm sure he loves you very much, and it is the funniest shit I've ever seen. Dr. Phil's already a disappointment, so, like, I mean... Yeah. This this week, to date this, has <laughs> been quite a week. Uh, it, that, along with Mike Pence thinking that uh, the anime Mob Psycho 100 is an affront on Republican values and, Amer- <laughs> and like American values has also just like, Oh, I blown my mind. You missed that one. Well, yeah. probably because you, you, you stay away from like the anime sector of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it's an anime about a kid with a bowl cut who is unassuming, <laughs> who literally goes into like a weightlifting club because he's like, I want to pick up chicks and he can't, he can't even like lift a chair, uh, but he's got super psychic powers. And his whole thing is he stares very blankly at everything because he has no emotion unless he's angry. So he's angry or emotionless. And so Mike Pence took all of the emotionless like images to think that that is an attack on American values. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> there's so much more anti-American TV shows you could have watched. So yeah. many more anti-American anime. Like there, there's an episode of there's a Dragon Ball Z. Uh, yeah, it's a Dragon Ball Z movie where uh, this will mean nothing to you except no. for this will mean something to the people who have seen this uh, episode. Uh, movie number twelve. Uh, I think it's Rebirth of the Dragon. No, it's uh, Fusion Reborn. Where. Uh, Goten and Trunks fuse to become Gotenks and they go Super Saiyan 3 because all of the evil villains from hell have come back uh, because uh, I think it's it's not Doc- well Dr. Jiro comes back but he teams up I think it was Dr. Mayu who they together uh, build well what really happens is that the giant machine that collects all the evil souls explodes because there's a dude who's supposed to be the janitor who's supposed to be managing the machine and he's listening to his Walkman and then the whole thing goes like tips the scale and he doesn't see it and explodes and then all of the evil souls like infest him. Uh, but then all the other souls that are just like super evil who exist in physical form in hell escape. So like your Frieza's, your cells, your, your booze. Uh, also, your Adolf Hitler's um, because Adolf Hitler appears <laughs> and Adolf Hitler appears with a whole bunch of fucking tanks uh, <laughs> and he has uh, a swastika on his forehead. Of course. Uh, and so he's commanding an army of ghosts uh, and Frieza and <laughs> because Frieza, the ultimate villain of the show, is just like Hitler. I respect that dude. Uh, I'll listen to him. So then Gotenks just utterly obliterates them. Now, Gotenks moveset involves uh, things he invented while hungry, mostly. So he has like move dance where it's like giant donut, a giant donut attack where he like he spits out this energy that just like suffocates people like a donut. Uh, And then he also spits out ghosts that look like him (laughs) that explode that wave and also give people the middle finger so his ghosts Mm -hmm. go up and they start blowing up nazi sturm tiger tanks uh Mm -hmm. and hitler is just like shouting like orders to like kill this fused like 11 year old child very aryan child um and eventually Gotenks is just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to kill everyone. So he does uh, as Goku and Vegeta also fuse to kill the main villain of the movie, Janemba, which is 
uh, a giant puffy like looks like Pillsbury Doughboy evil demon that can punch through uh, dimensions and the fabric of time. And then he transforms <laughs> into a thin demon. Uh, and then Goku and Vegeta now fuse as uh, Gogeta, uh, which is shut up. It's a great name. Uh, use their it like giant like no worse of a name than any of the other names you've said. Um, well, uh, <laughs> you should see their so their fusion dance fusion is Gogeta, but they're again this is gonna mean nothing to you. <laughs> the, their Potera earring fusion is Vegito. Vegito is stronger than Gogeta and is a permanent fusion. Now Gogeta is like an hour long fusion, uh, but they make some failed attempts. First, they turn into what they call Fat Gogeta, which is just. They, they their fingers have to be aligned when they do the fusion dance, which don't worry, I'll teach you the fusion <laughs> dance. Uh, and so it messes up and they turn into like a horribly fat shamed, like Gogeta who just runs around. Then they turn mm-hmm. into th- uh, thin Gogeta who just sits there and is like, I'm too thin to do anything, which like fair. Uh, and then they turn into normal Gogeta who's just like super cool. And all he does is he just like holds up his hand and a giant rainbow energy ball appears and just throws it at Janemba. And Janemba is like, that's a fucking like one foot squared energy ball. What is that going to do to me? Oh shit. I'm dying from the inside out. Uh, then he kills it and then they defuse. And then all of a sudden Hitler is just like, no. <laughs> so then Hitler like <laughs> dies again and all the villains go back to hell and they're like, we have saved the day. And if you think that was weird, just wait till the next episode, or the next episode, the next movie where there's literally a guy with an ocarina with a sword who looks like Link who has to, uh, cut a demon in half but the th- issue is is that he exists in the top half of the demon while his little brother exists in the bottom half of the demon so goku has to dragon punch his way through its stomach but also can't because ocarinas are the only thing that work at what point does nording get involved uh so nording <laughs> nording actually don't tell I, me I, there's a crossover between no, 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 no. Kingdom Hearts. I say this again to be clear here. I have not played any of the Kingdom Hearts games. I've only seen Brian David Gilbert's excellent YouTube video unraveling the storyline of Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Which his his video is on point. Um, there is parts of Dragon Ball Z where you deal with the issue of like, oh, my physical body is here and like my I'm but I'm not like alive and to be brought back and if i do too much like it's gonna like ruin the time i have on this physical body that's in this spot but not my physical body that exists in the afterlife but also like some people don't have physical bodies i guess if you're just like super buff strong you get a physical body it doesn't really make sense that's kind of the closest you get to nording uh because uh let's just face it kingdom hearts is the ultimate piece of fiction no one was gonna write anything better than that (laughs) and also it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. no way can you tell me that kingdom hearts doesn't make sense especially the part where there's a guy named uh Xehanort who or no it's mm-hmm. no it's what's the guy who there's like 17 Xehanorts or I, or something i've never played any of the games i have no idea there so it's like there's this beautiful uh donkey video which i don't know if i showed you i'll have to show I think you, you. Did. Okay, yeah, where it's just like, yeah, it's this guy, but he's actually this guy, who's actually a different guy, who's this guy from the past. Mm-hmm. Anyways, 
this is a really interesting tangent. <laughs> so, uh, Harv and Sylvia then are trying to walk away. Uh, what happens is mostly that uh, Thorpe is telling Eddie, like, he's on report because Eddie isn't in peak physical condition, according to him. But Thorpe then says he's also not in peak physical condition, and he put in a report on himself, too, and they should work together to get in shape. Uh, and then Harv and Sylvia try to get away dressed as lifeguards. Yeah. Uh, Thorpe, uh, Thorpe catches the two of them trying to run away as lifeguards and tells them, oh, you're heading in the wrong direction. What you really want is the weight room over here where you can train with Eddie. And at this point, yeah, I won't spoil it. Um, Thorpe then proceeds to drop weightlifting bars on each of Harv and Sylvia's chest, um, which at this point in the episode, I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is some <laughs> yep. wild shit. Um, like, this man sucks. Yeah. Which, to be fair, throughout this entire episode, he has sucked. Um, he does. And so this is an extension of that sucking, um, which actually I'm never going to use again as a phrase because I hate the way that sounds. Um, <laughs> is this an extension <laughs> of him sucking? Yes. Um, I'm going to use that phrase right now uh, <laughs> forever. Also, I'm just going to use that along with there's no place to get. Oh, I already forgot it. There's no place to get wet. I, I don't even remember. Oh, what the phrase uh, was, it was. Uh, hang on. Let me look it up in my notes. La 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 la. I'm stalling for time. Dad, it's Ohio. No place to get them wet in. <laughs> That's what she said. OK. <laughs> but yeah, as it turns out, Captain Thorpe dropping weightlifting bars on their chest um, was just a ruse so that he could pin them in place long enough for the cops to show up. Which was two seconds later. Yes. Um, it also makes no sense because there is no way he could have known any of this information. But there's only about two minutes left in the episode, so we have to wrap it all up at this point. Yep. Uh, next up, we've got Hobie and Mitch. And no, 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 no. We got one thing before that, which is... I think, yeah. Which is Eddie talks about how impressed he is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Eddie. And this was weird because this this scene, which is really unimportant, is in the episode description. And I was like, "This is what you thought was worth talking about." Which is Eddie is impressed by Thorpe's genius plan, and Thorpe says that his physical ability has gone away. Um, but yeah. his mind keeps getting better. And I'm like, oh. no, it hasn't. This is a shit plan. Yeah, it was it was very dumb. I didn't yeah. like this scene, which is why I didn't write any more about it. <laughs> right. The next scene is much more important because they talk about Captain Cluck again. Yeah. Basically, Hobie and Mitch are talking about how proud Mitch is of Hobie. And because Hobie and Jenny went and rescued the kid from the water. And then Gail comes in and says that Captain Cluck is going to be making me travel a bunch for work. So really, it makes more sense for Hobie to stay with Mitch, which felt like an excuse to me. I don't think I believe her in this, but I don't hold that against the writing or against Gail as a character. She admits it's a lie in the next scene. Um. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Literally the next scene, she's like, nah, ain't true. Yeah. She didn't say that, but. It's definitely implied. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the final scene of this episode, 
there's some Super Mario 64 underwater music that starts playing. Mm-hmm. And then Gale kind of runs away after telling Hobie the thing about her having to travel too much for work and it not being worth her bringing Hobie with her. And then Mitch goes after her and Gale talks about how she realized that she was, you know, making Hobie really sad and how broken up Hobie was about the fact that he would be leaving the beach and all of his friends. And so she decided that she wasn't going to take Hobie with her. I wasn't clear at this point whether it was that Gail wasn't actually going to have to travel or whether it was just that she was going to travel without Hobie. It's it's not totally clear. I think you could read it either way, honestly, but I don't think it really matters. Um, no, it doesn't really matter in the end. The uh, next part of this is basically that we find out Mitch still has Gail's duck and he gives it to her. And then it turns out Hobie was watching this whole thing and runs down to give Gail a book about Ohio. A which book is the, from the library, which exactly. is not his to give. <laughs> um, and then Gail goes to leave and Hobie runs out and hugs her and tells her that he loves her. And then we abruptly cut to commercial or not to commercial to credits and the music shift between the credits and this very, like, sentimental cover of the Super Mario 64 underwater music. Um, <laughs> I cannot stress enough how much this song sounds like the Super Mario 64 underwater music. Um, I'm going to have to listen to this again. Oh, my God. I am. I am. I have uh, on CD the entire. Well, almost the entire uh, Mario 64 soundtrack orchestrated. It's one of the few video game soundtracks I've ever gone out of my way to listen to. Like, I'm not someone who listens to video game soundtracks. I'm also just not someone who plays a lot of video games. Um, but that soundtrack is so good, and especially that underwater music. It's fantastic. And, like, th th one of the best YouTube re remixes is... Um, just look up My Boo 64. It's <laughs> uh, My Boo mixed with the dire i think it's dire dire docs mm -hmm. from mario 64 it it feels when i when i hear that song one when i hear the the that the that mario song and also when i hear my boo mm -hmm. i have this great sense of memory of uh driving down bothell way as a kid and smelling cinnabons and hmm. that to me is the most like 1995, 94 maybe thing possible is just a Jet City pizza that is going to go out of business in a year and Cinnabons. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just sickly sweet and I love it. Uh, but you know what else I love? Yeah. Is this episode. Yeah. This was definitely my favorite like we mentioned it earlier in the in the podcast but this is my favorite episode of baywatch so far like by a significant margin on a scale of one to ten where one is you walking on a beach a wet beach there's mud everywhere and every time you take a step there's a twig under your feet and ten is sniffing mitch's abs <laughs> where would you rate it <laughs> Um, I think I would give it, I think I would give it about an eight and a half. 
I think there's room for improvement, but I think it's still a very good episode. What would you say an eight and a half is? Yeah, I think if I had to quantify an eight and a half here, I would say that it is the feeling of money washing up on a beach, but being too oblivious and in love to notice or care. Wow, that is a feeling I want. Um, <laughs> uh, How about you? I, I would say eight and a half or nine as well, which I would probably, I would probably relate that to either Shawnee getting treated like a grown woman who has her own sense of autonomy, who can choose what she wants to do with her life and not be judged by her appearance, mm-hmm. or Shawnee being the petty badass bitch I know she is and <laughs> cock blocking Eddie. Yes. And I think it's actually probably the latter because God, I'm living for Shawnee. Um, also, I've noticed a lot now that I have started watching this show, I am seeing references to these actors like in other places, uh, specifically Billy Warlock and Erica Leniak. Uh, Erica Leniak seems to be uh, quite popular uh, on uh, your uh, like deeper pages of r slash all. And uh, yeah, you're just scrolling through and you're just like, okay, I'm on like page 20 now. And that's the Erica Leniak section uh, where all the posts are just like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Other people know who this person is. Yeah. Interesting. I love this episode. I thought it was great. Like, I had to stop it a few times and, like, think about what I was watching. As I mentioned, like, the scenes with Garner uh, talking about Cecilia Marie was really powerful. And, like, Gail talking with Mitch and Mitch just fucking up all the time and not understanding what was going on like this was so well written and i think the only parts that stop me from reading it higher are the constant shots to the suitcase yeah uh the jenny and hobie stuff maybe mm-hmm. uh i would like captain i mean i like the captain thorpe stuff but i think the payoff in the end isn't good yeah i don't really like that if he had gotten a little bit more shit thrown at him I would have rated this episode a little bit higher. But as it is, it felt like the show was kind of trying to, like, have its cake and eat it, too, where it wanted to both appeal to people who were actually as, like, misogynistic and shitty as Captain Thorpe is in this episode, but also give a, like, dog whistle nudge towards people who, you know, aren't shitty people. And I wish they had just committed to the show's opinion of him being, oh, he's a shit person stuck in the last decade. Yeah. I think something else I could have added to the episode was take out a song and instead put in a scene, a longer scene of Craig just giving Mitch the rights and telling him that you need to stop trying to make this thing happen. You're, you're divorced and like maybe watching Mitch struggle to deal with it and struggle to process it. We get that a little bit. He has a few seconds of him crying and saying, just because I'm divorced doesn't mean I don't love her, which 
that's that's what I want, but I wanted more of that. I, I guess that would have probably have improved it a little bit for me. But really, it, there's probably just small nitpicks here and there. I'm sure we're going to get a, a perfect 10 at some point out of this show. Like, no doubt. If this is like an 8.5 or 9, we're going to get better than this. It just has to. Like, because yeah. we're in season one and there's a bunch more of this show. And I already know I'm going to rate the wrestling episode a perfect 10 <laughs> out of 10. Like, and the Little Richard episode. Oh, spoiler. Um, I don't even know about this one. Oh, the Little Richard episode is going to be amazing because I think you're going to get more of it than I do. From what I understand, there are whole songs cut out uh, oh. of Little Richard singing and then of Mitch singing. Uh, and uh, just David Hasselhoff singing as a treat treat for the ears oh yeah uh, speaking speaking of music i do have one question for you so since you're watching this version with all of the remastered music and all of these you know deliberately written for baywatch songs do you have a favorite artist of the artists who have written songs for the remaster yet oh absolutely it's from this episode it's sean McCune. It's this song I talked about that sounds like John Bryan or, or Jason Faulkner. It's a song I actually went back and listened to a few times. Um, to describe it, it's very power poppy. It it's very very uh, two thousand one indie. That's what it sounds like, Ooh. and I guess that's why I like it because a lot of the other songs. Like the song from the last episode where it's like oh 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 <laughs> that one. <laughs> That one is very much, uh, God, what's her name? Um, sounds very Cindy Lauper esque. Oh, like very, yeah, totally, totally. It sounds very much kind of like girls just want to have fun. It it's supposed to be more like Rome, but the vocals sound like that. It sounds like a mix of Cindy Lauper and Susie Sue, mm -hmm. uh, who I always used to call. Susie Shoe, uh, <laughs> and then my ex corrected me that it's Susie Sue, and that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, um, but that song tried to be really eighties. This song, it, there's no way this song would have been released in 1989. They just weren't making music that sounded exactly like that. It has this like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna play it for you after this episode after we're done recording. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think I've actually heard the one you're talking about. I think we. I think I played it after last episode when you mentioned it to me. I think it's I I I legitimately like it. Now, if I if I'm talking about songs that I like I enjoyed from like a comedic standpoint, there's the episode two, I call it the Super Mario Brothers music, which has which I don't know if you heard, but whatever. Uh that one's quite good. Uh this little rock song here in this episode while as they're like punching people for money they just talk about gimme 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 is quite funny i think we're the interesting part is based on looking at some of the other songs and trying to figure out who the fuck made this music there's one or two songs that have like starring features in that they're like wow we're actually going to include the name of this song like this is a key song for our remaster oh wow uh so, and they're going to get a lot more, um, 
new wave smooth jazzy. Ooh. Yeah. Obviously, I'm going to be sharing the lyrics of those songs. Uh, and again, it's BaywatchRemasteredHD.com if you want to listen to them. Just be wary. This site was coded by an amateur <laughs> and like it it just bogs down your browser. But it's still like go to this site, listen to this stuff. Um, I, I've enjoyed the music and I think the music has actually improved my experience because I think it's just fun to hear that rather than to hear like the song someone else recorded for it. Uh, it just makes it a little bit more innovative to me. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to go back and maybe maybe not any of the other episodes, but at least go back and rewatch this episode with the remastered audio behind it. Oh, I will absolutely help you. I'll provide you with that. Um, now, before we before we end this episode, I like to continue our tradition of reading the plot description from the next episode. Ooh, go ahead. And our next episode is called <laughs> uh, our next episode is called the drowning pool uh, and it just makes me think of the band drowning pool uh, which I don't know if you would remember that song that band nope they did the song let the bodies hit the floor oh uh, no shit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have the IMDb plot and the Baywatch wiki plot. The IMDb plot is one sentence. Uh, they, <laughs> Baywatch one is not. IMDb plot is Jill investigates a suspicious drowning and becomes involved with the drowned man's suspicious family. The Baywatch wiki says a man is found drowned off the beach and Jill suspects foul play is the reason. She begins seeing the son of the victim and during the investigation discovers the man's cousin was responsible for his father's death. A man who helped Jill bring the victim ashore decides he wants to be a lifeguard as well, even though he isn't qualified. So, uh, yeah, this sounds like it's a Jill centric episode, which is going to be interesting because we have like no characterization of, drill, of Jill. Yeah. I'm I'm curious to see how it ends up playing out. Yeah, it also has some. Uh, hold on, what the fuck? Okay, uh, d- there's an actor on here called Claude Earl Jones, and I was trying to figure out who's related to James Earl Jones, but no, this guy is white. <laughs> I I don't know where I was going with this. I was looking at the. I always try to look at there's like some guest actor, but there wasn't any who's like important. There's just like guy who plays teen girl and guy who plays teen boy uh, <laughs> so uh, you know whatever uh but morgan i think we i think we absolutely love this episode i can't wait to see uh what's happening next and i may have mentioned this last episode but in two episodes from now we have a little bit of a treat uh, <laughs> and i'm really excited for that um and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, also, we are in the works planning uh, you know, other great things uh, for this podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, and let's be honest here. There's going to be 10 years of content for mm-hmm. this podcast. Uh, so we have to start planning now or it's going to get ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> so we're starting to plan big because you got to go big or go home. Uh, and we're already stuck at home, so we got to go big. Mm-hmm. Only one option left. But yeah, I think I think we're going to have some real good content coming up in these next couple episodes. And I'm excited for y'all to get a chance to hear it. But Agreed. 
I think at this point, the only thing left to say is thank you so much for listening to this episode of Baywatch Rookie School. If you want to find us on Twitter, our show handle is at Rookie School Pod. I am at Morgan P. Thrap. And I am at Snotsnit, S-N-O-T-S-N-I-T. We'll see you next week. And just remember, hips, lips, and fingertips. Ew. Ha, 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 ha,